Well, it is wonderful to be back. Yeah, it's great. Uh, for those of you who missed it, I spent the last couple of weeks in Fiji and I was teaching at a conference. I know that sounds like suffering for Jesus, doesn't it? <laughs> Everybody's all excited, like, ah, oh, man, was it beautiful. And I'm like, you know, I'm from South Florida. I mean, I've seen beaches. The impressive part was not the beach. It wasn't the mountains. It wasn't all the beautiful flowers and, you know, whatever. The impressive part was the beautiful people. It was amazing. It really was. And I'll give you guys a report in a couple of weeks, but the last time I'll just give you this, that I gathered with the people of God, it was in a little tiny church about the size of this section right here in our sanctuary. Uh, It was like a wood frame building where they had tin sort of screwed onto it. There were no windows. There were no doors. There was no air conditioning. There was no air conditioning. (laughs) It's summer over there. So there was no air conditioning and it was awesome was really, really cool. The pastor's name was John. He used to be a a witch doctor. So he has quite a conversion story. Loved that man. And he's doing a great work. So God is at work all over the place. And I know I was reminded that heaven is going to be a spectacular place, not simply because the Lord is going to be there and will be there in unbroken fellowship with him, but just wait till you see some of the people that you're going to get to enjoy forever with. Spectacular. It's amazing. So anyway, there's a big thank you coming from them to this church for, for allowing me to go, and uh, we'll share that when we get there, okay? If you've been with us throughout the course of this year, you know that we started out at the beginning of this year with a five-week series of messages, and we called it Know the Word, Live the Word. And for five weeks, we talked about the fact that our goal this year is to become a people of this book called the Bible, So we came together every single week and we said, all right, we want to be a people who know the Word of God, but who don't just know it, but who also live it, who take the treasures of the wisdom of this book, who store these treasures up in our hearts, and then who bring them out and live them out in our lives. And to help us be a people who know and live the Word, what did we do? We gave you all kinds of resources. We said, go and take the BTAT. You know, you've got the MCAT, the LSAT, the FCAT. Well, we came up with the BTAT, the Biblical and Theological Aptitude Test. I keep wanting to say assessment, but that's aptitude test. And so many of you took the BTAT, and we didn't take your scores and post them on a wall or anything like that. It's a self-grading experiment, and it was a little bit humbling, I think. That was the point. We need to know this book. So we've rolled out a bunch of classes. We've done now the 101 class, the 36,000-foot flyover of the Bible. Here's what it looks like, big picture. But we're offering that three more times this year. We're rolling out the 201 class next month. If you're not signed up, sign up. We've been doing the 301 class. We are actually studying a systematic theology book about two inches fat. And I know some of you first week went, I'm going to all the classes, and you went back and you saw that book, and that was the end of it for you. I had a couple come to me after last Tuesday night, and they said, look, here's the thing. We have not come to this because we thought you were going to call on us and ask us to be, you know, theologians, and this is all brand new to us, but it, it really was helpful. Anybody can come. And we want everybody to have one of these Bibles It's not to say it's the only Bible in the world, not to say that it's the best Bible in the world. It's the Bible that we've chosen. We think it's the best, so, you know, that's about as far as I can go with that. Get one of these. We give you the page numbers on Sunday. They're going to interact with your study guides that you get when you walk in the door. Bring it to church. Use it till it falls apart. Get another one. Store up its wisdom in your heart. Know the Word, live the Word. Know the Word, live the Word. Know the Word, live the Word. Know the word, what? 
live the word. Okay, now why do I do all that? I do all that to say basically the same thing that Matt said at the beginning, which is that I don't want you to think that just because we're starting a new series of messages this morning that we're leaving that behind. We're not. That wasn't just the goal for the first five weeks. It's the goal for the whole year. And really, what we're going to begin to talk about today is just a continuation of that conversation. Know the Word, live the Word. All right, so here's what we're talking about in this series. What does God's Word have to say? We want to know that. About what God's will is for my life. And why do I want to know the will of God for my life? So that I can then live it. Know the Word, live the Word. So what does God's Word have to say then about what God's will is for my life? Or let me put it a little differently. Hey, God, what do you want me to do? That you can relate to, right? What do you want me to do? And not just in terms of the overall direction of my life, but I'm talking about what do you want me to do on a moment-by-moment, day-by-day, week-by-week, month-by-month, year-by-year kind of a way. Because here's the thing. I've got to make all kinds of decisions all the time, some of them little, some of them big. And I'm interested in what God has to say on the matter. And here's why I'm interested Because an excellent life, and everyone wants to live an excellent life. You're not going to stop anybody on the street and go, hey, man, are you interested in living an excellent life? And they'd say, no, not really. Nobody signs up for that program. An excellent life is largely the result of a series of excellent decisions. Think about that for a minute. Decisions about who to marry. Decisions about kids or no kids. Decisions about how to parent those kids. Where to send those kids to school. School decisions. Kid decisions. College decisions. Career decisions. Business opportunities that open up for us. Do we move? Do we not move? I mean, how do I do, I know all of this stuff? Decisions about ethics. Decisions about morality. Decisions about sex. Decisions about dating. All kinds of decisions with big-time implications. Who you are today and where you are today is largely the result of the decisions you've made. If you think about your decisions and trace them, they'll take you to your chair. And who you will become and where you will go, well, that's the same deal. It will largely be as a result of the decisions you make. An excellent life is largely the result of a series of excellent decisions. And here's where God comes into that equation. Number one, only God can define what an excellent life is. Now think about that for a minute, because there's a day coming when we all will appear before the judgment seat of God. There is not a day coming when He will ever appear before our judgment seat. Ever. He's the one who creates the standard. He's the one who sets the definitions. He's the one who comes along and says, let me put a target on the wall for you. This target, that bullseye, that's the excellent life. The problem is that his target isn't our target. And I want to let you know that up front, because as we go through this series, you're going to kind of come up against his target and go, really? Because I define it this way. My target's hanging on this wall over here. And God's like, yeah, but that target doesn't matter. Let me give you the standard again and tell you who, who decides. That would be me. I'm the judge. We're interested, if we're truly interested in living an excellent life, in what he has to say about it. And what he has to say about it is different. And I was thinking about it this week. I think that we tend to, turn, we tend to decide what an excellent life is in terms of ease and comfort. Wouldn't you agree with that? I mean, so much of what we do in life is postured around the idea of trying to create a life of ease and trying to create a life of comfort. And there's nothing wrong with ease and there's nothing wrong with comfort. And God in grace oftentimes will give us ease and he'll give us comfort. But if that's the goal, that's a problem. 
I will tell you plainly, following Jesus is the most fulfilling thing, the most meaningful thing. It is the most powerful thing that you can choose to do in your life. It is the great adventure, but it's not easy. It's not. And it's not always comfortable. And if you can't look back in time and figure out where and when it was that following Jesus was difficult for you and or uncomfortable for you, then chances are you're throwing your darts at the wrong target. You ought to be able to go, you know what? It was kind of awkward following Jesus in that conversation. Hey, when I had to sacrifice this, oh man, not easy. It's a different definition. We define the excellent life in terms of safety and security. That's why we're hoarders. We're gatherers. See, we're gathering and hoarding to ourselves, trying to create a little bubble of safety and in which we find security. And every once in a while, God comes along with like a pin and just goes pop, and we realize that no matter what we do, we can't create that for ourselves. The Lord comes along and says, no, no, my target's hanging on this wall over here. Let me talk to you about this wall for a second. Let's let's talk about this target. The safest place and the most secure place on planet Earth, in fact, in the whole of the universe, is dead center in the middle of my will, doing exactly what I've called you to do, how I've called you to do it, and when I've called you to do it, even though, quite frankly, at times you'd look at that and go, man, that's risky. That is not safe. That's not within my little bubble, and I don't feel real comfortable and by the way, that doesn't look easy, and that wasn't my plan. We're throwing darts at the wrong target. So if you're interested in an excellent life, which I think we all are until maybe we hear the definition, then we've got to work off of God's target. We've got to look at His definition, and secondly, we have to realize that excellent decisions are the only kind of decisions God makes. He never makes a mediocre decision. He never looks back and goes, oh, duh, you know, I totally missed it. Hey, God, what does your word say about what your will is for my life? Or to put it more simply, what do you want me to do? And not just in terms of the general overall direction of my life. That's important. I'm interested in that. But now, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, what is your will? And I think when it comes to that question, the first thing that you need to do really is to go into the Scriptures and figure out what in the world the Scriptures are talking about when it talks about the will of God, because when you go to the Bible, what you find is that it talks about the will of God differently. Well, there's this kind of will, and then there's this kind of will, and there's this kind of will, and there's this kind of will over here. We're all interested in the last one, but the first three are really significant. Theologians have studied the Bible, and they've come up with terms that are not going to be found in your concordance, but they're helpful. And so, for example, you come to the Bible, and it speaks of what the theologians called of the decretive will of God, okay? You can use that later with your kids. You'll sound intelligent. The decretive will of God. Now, what in the world is that? It's what God sovereignly decrees. It's what God sovereignly ordains. It's what God is up to in the universe, and particularly in this world, and oh, by the way, in my life and in yours, because He decrees things, He governs over all things for a purpose, toward a goal, as a means of accomplishing an end. He is moving everyone and everything toward something. What's the something that He's moving us toward? 
You can say it a lot of different ways, but I think that Paul says it best in Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11. Here is what's coming. He's moving everything towards this so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Even the dead will rise and bow, he's saying, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's where we're all going. That's how it all ends. But how has God ordained that we get to that end? Because it involves you. He has ordained that we get to that end by His Spirit who goes to work through people like me and you. As you and I go into our homes, as we go into our businesses, as we go into our communities, as we go into this city, as we go into our schools, as we go into our little social networks, and as we go out even into the world beyond our borders, you know, we do something crazy. We fly to Fiji because it's suffering for Jesus. Seriously. And by the power of God's Spirit, we bring the mercies of the gospel We meet the real and practical needs of people, and we faithfully and consistently bring forth and clearly the gospel message of Jesus. We proclaim a salvation that is by faith alone and, you know, through grace alone and Christ alone. We preach the gospel. See, what God is up to is He's gathering up a people spanning all of the ages of men, spanning all of the colors of men, spanning all of the socioeconomic strata of men, spanning all of the educational, you know, whatever of men, every different language, every different tribe, every different nation, from all over the globe, from every age, he's gathering up a group of people who will forever worship and serve him, not merely as their creator, but also as their redeemer, as their savior, as their Lord. And he is ordained to do that in part through you. And I know you want to say, well, you know, it's kind of a semi-interesting tidbit of biblical and theological trivia, but that's really not the kind of will of God I'm looking for. I want to know, do I get married or not? Kids, yes or no, up or down? What college should I go to? And we're going to get to that in this series, I promise. It's where we'll spend most of our time. But whatever you do, don't run past the decretive will of God. Don't run past His plans and purposes in the world. And not just in the world, but in the world through you. Because whatever it is that He's going to call you to do, whatever His answer to your, hey God, what do you want me to do question will be, it will be consistent with His decretive will. So when you come to a decision and you survey your options and you go, you know, do I do this or this or this or this or this, think of it in terms of what God is up to in the world. He's moving us toward every knee bows, every tongue confess, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, and He's moving us that direction by His Spirit through, through people like us. And oftentimes you'll find your answer right there. So when the Bible talks of the will of God, it speaks of His decretive will, but it also speaks of His will of disposition. That's the second fancy term for you this morning, but it means what pleases the Lord. It is the the will of God that you and I live lives that are pleasing to Him. So what does that look like? Well, all over this book called the Bible, He tells us, I'm just going to give you a couple of examples. You look, for example, at Hebrews 11, verse 6, and it says, without faith. So there it is. It is impossible to what? To please Him. That's what we're talking about. So now it's a life of faith. What kind of faith? Well, 
as a baseline starting point for whoever would draw near to God must believe that A, he exists, and B, he rewards those who seek him. I love that. It reminds me of what Isaiah says. He says, seek the Lord while he may be found. It's like God is saying, hey, I can be found. In fact, I I would even like to be found. I'm not hiding from you. Seek me and you will find me. Seek me and you will come to know me. Seek me and we'll walk together. Seek me and you'll come to know my voice. The reality is that those of us who are most in tune with the answers to the questions of, hey, God, what do you want us to do, are those of us who are most seeking the Lord, who are walking most closely together with Him. You know the voice of the Lord. Jesus says, my sheep know my voice. You learn one's voice, don't you? And it's very distinctive. So he says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that A, he exists, and B, he rewards those who seek him, those who come to know him, and to know what in the world he's saying to them. Here's another example, Colossians 1, verse 9, Paul says, and so from the day that we heard about you guys, about your faith, he's saying, and about the way that you love each other, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. That's what we're talking about. There is a knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. It's a different kind of wisdom and understanding, and I think we need to acknowledge that. It's different. So as to do what? To walk, which in the Bible refers to the way that we live. So he's saying, so as to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully, and here it is, pleasing to Him because it's the will of God that you and I live lives that please Him. Okay, so what do those lives look like? They look productive, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You're like, I live a productive life. That's not really what I'm talking about necessarily. A lot of us produce in a lot of ways. It's productive of the good works, of the good fruits of the gospel. That's the pleasing life. That's the excellent life. That's throwing a dart at the right target. In 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1, last example, Paul says, Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk, how you ought to live, he's saying, and to what? To please God. He's like, we've shown you how to do this, and you're doing it. He says, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. He's saying, guys, you're off to a good start living lives that please God, and here's my desire for you. Do more of that. More of what? Well, he goes on in that chapter to talk about things like holiness Purity, honor, brotherly love. And I know some of you are thinking, well, that's, that's great, Tom. Again, interesting little tidbit of biblical and theological information, but I want to know whether I should take this job or not. I want to know what to do with this money that I've got. I want to know how to get my kids through high school. Hey, God, what do you want me to do? We're going to get to that. But whatever he says in answer to that is going to be consistent with his will of disposition. It's going to be consistent with what pleases him, you see? So as you begin to survey your options, and you've got option A and B and C and D and E, or maybe just A and B, you've got to say, look, you know, I have to consider all of these things in light of what I know from the Word of God to be pleasing to the Lord 
Does that suggest an answer? Because oftentimes it does. So when the Bible speaks of the will of God, it speaks of the decretive will, it speaks of His will of disposition. Thirdly, it speaks of His moral will. And most of us are kind of familiar with that one, at least sort of. That's where God comes to us in His Word and He says, okay, look, here's the deal. I want you to do this and not do this. Do this, don't 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 do that. Do this, be sure to do this, and don't do that. It's the thou shalts and the thou shalt nots of the Bible. It's His law. It's His commandments, which if you think about it, practically speaking, means that there are things that we deal with every single day that God has already addressed in His law. We don't have to wonder what His will is. We don't have to go to the Lord and say, hey, you know, God, I'm kind of wondering, what do you want me to do here? If He's already told us. All right, get ready to be uncomfortable. Seriously. You do not have to pray about whether or not to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You just don't have to do that. You don't have to go there. Hey, Lord, what do you think? You don't have to touch it. Do you know why I bring that up? Because almost every person here today, almost every person here today is either living together, not married, or lived together before they got married, at least from my generation down. It is absolutely prevalent, and the arguments in favor of it seem logical. You know, I mean, you wouldn't buy a pair of shoes if you didn't try it on. I guarantee you, you tried on whatever shoes you're wearing today before you bought them, didn't you? The car you're driving right now, you didn't just walk up and go, I'll take that one in blue and not test drive, right? It's more economical to do it. It's more practical to do it. It seems to make sense to do it. And there is a wisdom from heaven that is coming to us and speaks unambiguously and says, no, actually, it's off the table. Hmm. Wow. I think that the Lord comes to us in moments like that, and when we, when we forsake His moral will in that area, we do so in ignorance. Either ignorant of what His moral will is or ignorant of how sacred marriage is, and we dumb it down to a piece of paper, a ceremony, and a party. It's none of those things. It's precious. And we take sex and we do with that the same thing. It's a physical thing, and that's all that it ever is. And we dumb that down too. And God is standing there going, no, I've given you certain things that are precious, that are holy, that are gifts, and that need to be handled carefully. I will tell you frankly that the biggest wounds that you will experience in life usually are in the area of sex and sexuality. It's huge. God's not trying to take from us. He's not trying to be impractical, you know, because He gets His jollies messing up our plans. He's a Father who loves, and He comes to us in grace and says, look, I I know what this moral universe looks like. I created the moral world just like I did the physical world, and there's a design to it. And let me give you some rules that are going to help you operate and function rightly within it. All right, are you uncomfortable yet? Let's move on. You don't have to pray about whether or not you ought to tithe. You just don't even need to go there. Why does God want you to tithe? Is it because he's sweating it out, trying to make his rent payments? You know, he's going, oh, dear Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do if Tom doesn't come through with his tithe check this month, because it's huge. 
And I've got insurance payments. Do you know why he calls you to do that? Commands you. Because you and I need to do it. You and I need regularly built into the rhythm of our lives to come to our God with this stuff called money that represents to us life and to say to God and to ourselves, to our wives and husbands and family, and to a world that needs to see us value things differently than they do, that my safety and security is not found here, it's found in the Lord. And my God is not this, it's Him. And when I give this, small portion, relatively speaking, what I'm saying is everything He's given me, well, He's given me. And actually, it's His. There are just some things you don't need to pray about. You don't need to pray about whether to go out and get hammered with your buddies on the weekend. You don't have to pray about that. Hey, you know what? That's very prevalent. Happens all the time. Happens here. Happens with... It happens. If I had a buddy raise their hand, you know, I mean, it'd be... You know, I'm not going to do that. Don't worry. But seriously, and I'm coming to you as somebody who's not a teetotaler. I'm not. I don't think that it's a sin to have a drink. I think we need to be very careful with alcohol, however. It's a sin if you're an alcoholic and you can't control it. Don't even go there. It's a sin if you're going to cause somebody else to stumble and fall into that. Don't even go there. But if you want to have a glass of wine with your wife at home or whatever and and within those confines, I don't think that's a problem, quite frankly. But drunkenness is off the table. Go look up drunkenness in the concordance in your new Reformation study Bible because it has a killer concordance, by the way. When you get home and look at what it's listed alongside, it will humble you if you're going out and getting hammered with your buddies on the weekend. And some of you are. You don't have to pray about that. You don't have to pray about pornography. I've heard people say, you know, but who's it hurting? Oh, I don't know. Let's see. We've got a whole industry of people that are being scarred by it. It's the single largest industry on the internet. What about your husband? What about your wife? And if you're not married, what about your future husband? What about your future wife? What about what you're doing to that which is precious called sex, this gift that God has given to us? What it's becoming for you? And what about your own soul? Very destructive. Item after item, issue after issue, the Lord God comes to us and He says, look, if you want to know what I think about this... I've told you already, and I've told you in here. And I'll say one other thing. I would be so thrilled to see what we need as a Christian community is to see believers in Jesus love God and love Christ enough to forsake those kinds of things and to live differently and to say to the world in the most measurable ways, in the most obvious of ways that we value and find satisfaction in Jesus and not this. He he means more to me than this. My passion for Him is greater than this, and the pleasure I find in Him is bigger than this. Now, the good news is that there's grace through faith in Christ. And He sweeps in and rescues us. And He forgives our sin. And He washes away all of our guilt and shame. And I need to tell you, I know that for a fact because I've experienced it. Please don't ever assume that because I'm the pastor 
that I don't know anything about any of this stuff. I lived in a fraternity house for crying out loud. Seriously. I know of what I'm talking. There's faith and, and there's grace through Christ. But don't sit around wondering what God's will is for you in areas when he's already told you. And don't resent him for telling you either. See, one of the great ironies of life when it comes to the moral will of God is that on the one hand, we resent him for really stepping in and saying things like this. It's too restrictive. It's too narrow-minded. It's too impractical. It's not economical. It's this. It's that. It's like, you know, man, I wish he would just keep his nose out of my business, so to speak. On the one hand, we resent it when he does that. On the other hand, we in our lives, as we violate that will and other people that we come to know as they violate that will, experience the consequences of violating that will. We live with that chaos. And by our own testimonies, prove the reality that when God comes to us and says these things, He's not seeking to bind us up, He's seeking to set us free. Our family has been trying to help a young lady in this community, not in this church community, though I would love, love, love it if she was, and maybe she will be someday. But right now, in this particular chapter of her life, there's a lot of chaos, okay? I've got chapters in my book that look like that too. And I know many of you do as well. You know, she's bright, she's articulate, she's got a lot of stuff going with her for her, but right now she's 25 years old, she has three kids under the age of five by three different men. She's never been married. There's no guy in the picture. She's having a hard time keeping a job or even getting a job right now, and she's moving from house to house, place to place, friend to friend, relative to relative, just trying somehow to survive. And we've been trying to help her survive. And I'm not telling you that story because I think I'm better than she is. No, I think if you flipped a few pages back, you might find out otherwise. I'm telling you this because I think if you went to her today and you said, you know what, let's rewind the tape on your life 10 years. And let's go back 10 years and I'm going to put a microphone in your face and I'm going to ask you what you think your life is going to be like when you turn 25. I don't think she would describe for you what I just described for you. And yet, I would ask you, was it unforeseeable? Is it a mystery how she got there? Is it a mystery how I get where I get? Is it a mystery how you get where you get? So many times I sit down with people and they're telling me about what they're involved in or what they're doing or what their relationship is, and I'll say, hey, listen, here's the thing. There is a road you are on. I can see that road very clearly. Why can I see that road clearly? Because the Lord tells me all about that road in this book. Here's where the road ends. It's not unclear. What do you want to do? So anyway, I know some of you are thinking, okay, well, thanks again for the really long lesson on morals, because that made me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You're judging me, Tom, and I love you guys, man. I'm not judging you. You know better than that, and I'm not perfect. But I know you're interested in, hey, God, you know, what do you want me to do? Well, whatever it is that he's going to give you in response to that question is going to be consistent with what his moral will is. It just is. And so as you survey your options, 
And you come to those decisions, you say, okay, what do I know about God from this moral will? What do I know about what it is that He would have me do and not have me do? And oftentimes that suggests an answer to the question. It makes one of those options kind of begin to pop out. You see how it works? So somebody comes to you and they say, okay, listen, I'm going to offer you a job. You go, hey, God, I've been offered a job. Really cool, really good. Hey, but here's the thing. They kind of do business a little bit dishonestly. Nothing illegal. A lot of people do it. What's your will for me in this? Well, my will for you is to be a radically honest person. So how do those things pair up? See how it works? Hey, God, I've been asked to go out with this group of people, and I know where we're going to go, and I know what we're going to end up doing, because every time we go there, this is what we end up doing. And, or that's what I've heard, and you know, what's your will for me? Well, I don't know. What are you going to end up doing? And how does that line up with what's pleasing to me? Hey, Lord, I've got this really great opportunity, and I've got to, however, move to Alaska. Alaska's beautiful, by the way. But I've got to give up this ministry that I'm involved in, and I've got to pull my kids out of, out of their working in children's ministry, and we're going to leave in our small group in this precious community of things, and I, I feel like things are really happening, and I'm part of what's going on here, and I'm going to be working 60 hours a week for the next 10 years, so you know I'm pretty much going to be disengaged from your kingdom purposes, but I'm going to re-engage some point down the road, hopefully, and you know what do you think of that? Well, maybe the answer to that is go do that. I, I can't say one way or the other what the answer to that is, but I think that I would evaluate it in part against the the eternal purposes of God. What is the target hanging on the wall that he hangs on the wall? What's the definition? What's the goal? It's every knee bowing. It's every tongue confessing Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And his will is to use us. That's the great adventure. It isn't always easy. It isn't always comfortable. It doesn't always appear safe, though it is. It doesn't feel secure a lot of times, though if you're in the center of His will, it's the most secure place to be. By His Spirit, He wants to use us to get there. And we're going to spend the rest of this series talking about, you know, the personal will of God. That's the way I'm I'm describing it. That's the, okay, what do you want me to do? Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, we're going to get to that starting next week. But don't run past what the Lord has already shown you. Don't run past his plans and purposes, his decretive will. Don't run past what he's told you is pleasing to him. Don't run past what you already know to be true about the moral will of God for your life because so many different times the answer that we're looking for is already there, which is just another way, by the way, of saying that it's found in this book. Know the Word, live the Word. Amen.